It is great to have you worshiping with us here at Faith Bible Church. I want to take a minute and just ask a couple of quick questions for you. How many Chiefs fans do we have in here? How many Packers fans do we have in here? How many Bills fans do we have in here? How many Bucks fans do we have in here? How many Broncos fans do we have in here? <laughs> Talk about a painful situation. I don't know about you, but looking right now, I think that we are in a dry spell. Uh, in talking to the management, I think that we might actually have to leave the promised land and head over to Moab and see if we can survive, right? Uh, talk about some serious, serious pain. What about pain? Let's talk about that for a moment. How many of you have experienced a time in your life where there was great pain? I'm not talking necessarily physical, but although with that I don't want to belittle if maybe there is a chronic illness that brings physical pain, that could be it. But perhaps uh, you are living your life doing everything that you could and something unexpected that was really out of your control came upon you like a freight train. Uh, maybe it was an illness. Maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was the damage of a relationship, be it through a marriage or be it with a son or a parent to a child. Uh, maybe it was a job or a business that you built and everything that you put into it crumbled quickly. That might be pain to your life. For me, I remember one of the times where I experienced deep pain was back when I was in college, my junior year at Lafayette. Uh, life was good. I had worked hard. I had done my thing. And uh, we were essentially moving for me to an opportunity to go and study in Argentina for the next several months. What I had uh, happening was the time for me to go to Argentina wasn't until February, so there was going to be three weeks where the plan was for me to return to Lafayette and not have any classes and spend it with my friends, immersing myself in studying. We'll just leave it there. It was going to be a great time. It was going to be a fun time where I really had no responsibilities. I was going to be able to hang out with friends, enjoy their company, and have essentially three weeks of freedom until it was time for me to head to Buenos Aires. And I remember we were about a week in and I was deeply immersed in studying in the bar room of our fraternity house. Things were wonderful and going well until a friend of mine said that my mom had called on the phone and needed to speak to me. Interestingly enough, at first I thought, well, maybe, you know, mom's just kind of checking in. I'll get with her at another time. And then a few moments later, the friend came back and said, your mom has called again and she needs to speak with you. At that point in time, I recognized that something was going on and it was potentially serious. So I went up to my room and I can remember hearing essentially the sound of studying going on down in the bar room. When I picked up the phone and my mom said, Trevor, I've got some news for you. Are you sitting down? Several months earlier, a good friend of mine, Dominic Armijo, and I had spent several days together. Dominic and I had grown up essentially for years attending Heatherwood Elementary, then going on to Platte Junior High, then going to Boulder High School. 
Uh, Dominic and I were good friends, but over time, particularly at this moment, we became really, really good friends. Uh, Dominic was a wonderful individual. Uh, he went on to Harvard, very bright person, played baseball for them, and had a 4.0. Unbelievable future in front of him. We had spent time over Christmas. Things were going very well. The world was at his feet. And the phone call from my mom was that Dominic had taken his life. I remember sitting down in deep pain, deep anger, and deep frustration. At that point, I began to say, if there is a God, how in the world could God allow this to happen? Plans changed. Got on a plane, flew home, went to the funeral. I remember the pain in everyone's hearts. Every time that I go back to Boulder, which is not often, I take opportunities to go and just take a few moments at Dominic's grave. I became angry at God. I became frustrated with him, and I said, how in the world can this occur? But interestingly enough, what I want to tell you is, is that in that time of pain and in that time of deep anger, the faithfulness of God and the fruitfulness of Christ was just around the corner. Some of you might be experiencing a deep time of pain in your life right now. Some of you might be going into an experience of pain. Some of you might be coming out of it. But as I've said earlier in these sermons, one of the things that I want to encourage us all in is some of the most joyous people and fulfilled people that I see in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are the ones who have experienced deep moments of pain. And the difference that I see is because rather than becoming bitter and going against God, through the pain, they have driven toward the fullness of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to ask a question, and we're going to begin to answer this as we travel into Ruth chapter 2, and that's simply this, that in the midst of life's pain, how can we find grace, refuge, abundance, and blessing. In the midst of life pain, how can we find grace, refuge, abundance, and blessing? In a moment, we're going to be traveling into the second chapter of the book of Ruth. And I love this book because it is one where we see a temporal situation unfold. That if we were to look, it goes from good to bad to worse to desperate to deserted, to destructed, to full of life's pain. But then just around the corner, we see the redemption of an individual or individuals who have been completely broken through the character named Boaz. We hear that he becomes a kinsman redeemer, and we'll begin talking about that today and developing that over the next couple of weeks Essentially, someone who comes in and provides wholeness and fullness beyond belief to someone who doesn't deserve it, yet receives it graciously and generously. But we also have to remind ourselves is that as we travel through the four chapters of the book of Ruth, it can go relatively quickly. It goes relatively fast. But as you look at the story and the actuality of what's going on, 
the time of Ruth and Naomi's pain is extended. It's not just a day, it's not just a week, but it occurs over several years. I want to just say that for a moment right now because some of you might be going through a challenging situation and it might be going on for several weeks, several months, or perhaps several years to the point where you're wondering, is God there? Does God care? Or has he abandoned me? And just like in the book of Ruth, when you pull back and you look at the whole story behind what truly is going on, you see the beauty and the joy of what God is doing. Lovingly, I might encourage you, if you are in a time of pain or loneliness or hurt or wonder, to step back, to see the forest through the trees, to recognize indeed that if you allow God to work, if you move toward him rather than away from him, if, as we've seen earlier, like Ruth, you turn in a moment and say, rather than going my own direction, even though I don't know, even though I don't have it all together, I'm going to move in the direction of God. As Ruth says, your people will become my people and your God will be my God. And you trust in faith and walk in that direction. I promise you that you will see the fullness of Christ. It may not necessarily mean that your life is perfect. It may not necessarily mean that everything will go well. But what it does mean is simply this. That in Christ, we receive a kinsman redeemer. We receive someone who comes and brings us to a fullness that we can't possibly fathom. He brings blessing beyond what we deserve. He provides and protects beyond what we deserve. And it's whole and it's complete and it's solidified by what Christ has done at the cross. We see through Boaz in a moment that he will serve as this kinsman redeemer to Ruth. That's going to begin to be developed here in this chapter and it comes to fruition in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But what's important to see is as we travel through this story at a temporal level, people might wonder what's going on, what's happening. But behind the scenes directing it all, guiding it all, making it all occur, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as you travel through life, as things occur in your life, these little things become big things. Don't miss that. Put those together. I tell you, every time that I think of Donamic, I still tear up. It's not an easy thing for me to talk about. But as I step back in my life, I recognize that that was one of the darkest spiritual times for me where honestly I hated God. I didn't know who God was. I had an idea, but I just was like, you know, I don't want any of it. And yet it was in the next year that in a step of faith, through the love of God pursuing me, that I turned my heart to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whether you like it or not, never thought I would be a pastor in rural Iowa, and yet here I am. And God has done great things, but it took a time of pain to draw me to the fullness of Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment. I want to just put a few quotes up here that might resonate with your heart. Pain changes people. 
It makes them trust less, overthink more, and shut people out. What a hard quote that is. But it's a true quote. If we turn to ourselves and try to do things in our own strength when we are hurting. Lovingly, I tell you, do you want to trust less? Do you want to go through life not trusting people? Not trusting others? Do you want to overthink things and wonder? Do you want to shut people out? Or do you want to turn to God and find fullness in Him and begin to trust who He is and what He does and that through that begin to recognize that there are other people out there who might be experiencing the same thing, who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and realize that there's brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking through this life of which I've said earlier, Jesus says that there will be trouble. There will be challenge. Just because we come to Jesus does not mean that our lives are perfect. Doesn't mean that we don't experience hurt or hardship or challenge or loss. But what it does mean is, is that our lives are whole in him and we've been redeemed from this life to an eternal life with our king, with an eternal inheritance, with provision and protection beyond what we can possibly fathom. Another quote for, for you is this. I can wipe away the tears from my eyes, but I can't wipe away the pain in my heart. Can I ask a loving question of you? How many of you can easily wipe away the tears so you look good on the outside, but right now your heart is just full of pain? I'm not saying that judgmentally because I think sometimes the trap of the enemy is to do that, to make us think that we've just got to kind of look good on the outside so that no one can get into the inside. And yet what we do is put on this facade in our lives, making everybody think that we're okay, yet inside we are retching in pain. And lovingly, again, I come back and I say in a moment, as we see in this chapter, turn your heart to the fullness of God and trust in him and allow Jesus to come in and remove that pain as only he can do. Another quote is this, the most painful tears are not the ones that fall from your eyes and cover your face. It's the ones that fall from your heart and cover your soul. Interestingly enough, we see in Scripture that what? God holds every tear in his hand that we shed. What a wonderful picture that it is. Every single tear that you have cried and will cry, when there is life and pain involved, Jesus holds in his hand. What a comforting thought. What a blessed thought it is to know that there is this redeemer who holds every tear that we shed in his hand. If you have the book of Ruth with you, I would encourage you. We're going to be taking a look at chapter 2, the first 17 verses. And I just want to take, again, just a brief moment to sort of set up what's going on for those of you that might not have been here over these past couple of weeks. We're in the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges. Interestingly enough, if you look in your Bible, it actually follows right after the book of Judges. This was a dark spiritual time for God's people. 
there was a time where people were following God and it was good and little by little they began to step away and turn to idols. And so for the people of God, uh, there was a remnant. There was a group of individuals who were still wanting and desiring to live for God. But overall, it was a dark spiritual time. May feel like a world around us today. Several of us, as I look around, are concerned over the happenings in our world. We're wondering where God is and what God is doing. It feels dark spiritually. And yet we must be reminded that there is always a remnant of God's people. We then become to find that there's a family who is living in Bethlehem and there is a famine in the land and so they are forced to move from Bethlehem to the land of Moab. This is about a 50 mile trek which today isn't that big of a deal. I mean it would be like moving from Panora over to Des Moines. But in their day, you have to recognize that this is a large journey for them. It would be as if we moved from here to a foreign land, to the Orient, or to the middle of Russia, or to the middle of Latin America. Very different in what we're used to. This family goes with the hopes of finding something better. Things seem to be going well, and we come to a character called Naomi. She has a husband. She has two sons. And so for her, life is good because in her day, a husband and sons were essentially your financial provision and protection. It would be as if she had a big 401k and a big investment and everything was fine. Her security was sure. They travel to the land of Moab and the two sons marry two Moabitesses, two ladies from Moab. One, Orpah, and the other, Ruth. Life is good and things are happening, but then all of a sudden, a situation goes from okay to bad to desperate to despair. Her husband passes away, and then to make matters worse, her two sons pass away, leaving them with nothing. In what only Naomi knows to do, she logically says, well, probably the best thing to do is to buck it up, to figure this out. You two ladies, Orpah and Ruth, it's okay. I'll figure this out. You go, you find two Moabite men and Mary, and they will take care of you. She almost commands, in fact, she does command them to, to, to leave. Interestingly enough, what we see, to no fault of Orpus, she follows the commands of Naomi. I've said before, her name means the back of the neck is what she's known for. And that's essentially as she turns to go find her fortune or her life through another Moabitess. Or sorry, another Moabite. But Ruth does something different. She says, essentially, no, I'm not going to go. I'm going to turn to you and your people will be my people and your God will be my God and I will not leave you. So this God help me that I'm with you till the day that I die. Completely illogical, completely unknown. She trusts Naomi. 
And she trusts these people. And she trusts the God of Naomi. And they return back to Bethlehem. And they begin to live their life. That's where we pick up in this story. At the start of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative in her husband's side. From the clan of Elimelech. A man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. She went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for the short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you and wherever you are thirsty and get a drink from the water of the jars of the men that have filled them. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she thrust the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted about to an epa. She carried it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. This is an interesting time as we look at what's happening in not only Ruth, but Naomi's lives. We see that they have gone from a moment of extreme pain and challenge and destitution, but yet they have trusted in God and returned back to the land of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, as we've said before, essentially in Hebrew stands for the house of bread. It was a place that was known for good harvesting. 
And interestingly enough, we see that Ruth makes a decision and she says to Naomi, you know, I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go try to figure out how to provide the best that I can for myself and for you. What we're going to see here in a moment is a temporal happening, but yet a spiritual truth as God is directing the life of Ruth. In the midst of life's pain, how can we find grace, refuge, abundance, and blessing? The first thing that I would encourage us is, in is this, that when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to fields of grace. Remember again that Ruth earlier in chapter 1 said, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. It's not the temporal thing to do. What would be right for me is just to return to Moab and see if I can find a husband and just go that direction. But I'm going to step out in faith and trust in the protection and provision of your God. And interestingly enough, over time, what God does in a temporal situation is he brings not only Ruth, but Naomi to a field of grace. I love how this starts out. Now, Naomi had a relative in her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. It's interesting. Uh, if you look in a variety of different passages of different translations in the Bible, you'll see that it's a man of standing or a man of great wealth or a man of great fortitude. And the reason for that is the word in Hebrew is so broad that it's very hard to encompass into a single word. Now, think through this for a minute. I've said before that we're going to discover that Boaz is an archetype to Jesus. Simply that he is the representation, for lack of a better word, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Boaz is not equal to Jesus. I don't want to, to put him on the plane of our Savior. But the character of Boaz emulates that of Jesus. And as we describe Boaz, a man of great wealth, a man of great prosperity, a man of great fervor, but yet the word can't fully encompass who he is. It's the same that we talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can't fully encompass Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. How much time do you have? He's a comforter. He's a peacemaker. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the alpha and the omega. Right? We go on and on and on and on. You can't encompass fully who Jesus is. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. Interesting here. Notice now that the language has changed from daughter-in-law to daughter. Take notice of that. Because little by little, even though on a legal, temporal level, she's a daughter-in-law, the relationship has changed. And in a moment, 
what you will see is how Boaz greets Ruth. Again, in a representative fashion, when we place our faith and trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is our kinsman redeemer. We'll begin to explain that in this passage in a moment. But we are adopted into the family of God. We become sons and daughters of the living king with full rights and privileges to the family. So in a nuance, little by little, what is happening on a temporal level, yet through the hands of a sovereign God, is he is drawing Ruth, an outsider, a rejected individual, a poor and destitute woman into a family with full rights, inheritance, and privileges. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Eliminach. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They called back. I love these two spots. As it turned out just then, what a coincidence. So often in our lives, we look at things and think that they are coincidental. And yet, as we look back at the big picture, they are completely providential. Out of all the fields that she could go to, it just so happens that she goes to the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be in the line of Elimelech, who just so happens can become a kinsman redeemer. And it just so happens that as Ruth goes to that field, that Boaz does too. What a dink! Or is it the providence of God? I want to take a moment, and I want to pause on that. Because sometimes we might think in our lives as we walk through the temporal setting that these little things that are happening are just coincidental. And yet if we take time to look back and see what God is doing over the big picture, we begin to discover that they're providential. In those moments where you're wondering, where is God and what is he doing and why can't I see him? Lovingly, I would encourage you to take a step back and recognize that sometimes in those little coincidences, they add up to the great providence of God as he is working and moving not only in your life, but in the lives of others to draw you to himself and to the fullness of God. When we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to fields of grace now think through this for a minute. We also want to look at what Ruth is doing. She goes and she gleans in the field. Don't miss that word. Because what is going on here is the provision that has been set up by God's economy to provide for the poor and the destitute. Someone who would go and glean in a field was a provision set up in the book of Leviticus chapter 19 where farmers 
were to essentially go and harvest, but then what was left over, what was sort of the, the scraps of the harvest, were to be left in the field. They weren't to go back and clean it up perfectly. And that was so that the poor and the destitute could come and they could pick up the leftover scraps to try to provide for themselves. Now think through this for a minute. On a temporal level, God's economy is wonderful because he's providing for the people, but he's also asking the people to move with action. It's not a free handout. It's not just welfare where you sit and you do whatever you want and then you're provided for. It's you go and you act, but in acting you receive. Yet what was going on here as she's gleaning in the field was a mark of someone who is utterly destitute. This was like the last thing that you would do. I've tried to go do this. I've tried to go do that. I might do this. I might do that. Well, at least if I have to, I can go and I can glean from the field. Now also recognize this. She's a woman who is a Moabitess. So culturally, ladies, please don't get upset, but in her day, a woman was seen as less than a man and someone who was not a person of God or an Israelite, a Moabitess, was like, why do we need to deal with her? She's nothing. And she's going and trusting. She's working to be provided for. One of the things that I think is interesting is we're going to see in a moment how God sovereignly designs a manner of blessing for Ruth that can't be thought of. It can't be constructed logically. Because logically, what should occur is Ruth should go glean in a field, get a couple of scraps, hopefully come home, maybe have enough to eat for her to get satisfied, possibly, but certainly not enough for Naomi and not enough for an extended period of time. Let me put it this way. It's like rummaging through a garbage can at a restaurant for leftover food, hoping to pick up some scraps. And then we begin to see God's hand working. Before we get there, I want to throw this quote out to you by Donna Van Leer. She says, It is predictable that God will take care of us. What is unpredictable is how he will do it. Don't ever, ever, ever begin to doubt the protection and the provision of God. It is stated in Scripture everywhere. God has made a pledge. God has made a covenant. God's promises are true. He will do what he says. But lovingly, I tell you, he may do it in a manner that we don't know and we don't understand. And that's what we begin to see in this story. When we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to field of grace. We move forward. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And they turn back and say, The Lord also with you. Boaz is a man who loves God. So not only does it just so happen 
that Ruth is in this field. Not only does it just so happen that Boaz is there, but it also just so happens that Boaz is in the clan of Elimelech, and it just so happens that Boaz loves the Lord. do that. Is that better? Okay. I sound more, more. Yeah. I love batteries, right? Okay. We'll see. Can you, uh, can you hear me a little? Okay. That's better. Okay. Where was I? Um, uh, okay. She said, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for the short rest in the shelter. Ruth is doing her thing. She is acting. She is moving forward. She isn't just sitting, waiting. But she is in hardship. This isn't a fun thing to do. Sometimes God might put you in a situation where you have to move forward in faith and in trust, and it might not be necessarily the thing that you enjoy doing. I don't think that Ruth got up that morning and was like, woohoo, I'm going to go glean in a field. I can't wait to do it. This is going to be wonderful. But she does. She moves forward in faith. Sorry. You're, oh, you're fine. Can you shove that slightly in your pocket? Does that work? Yeah. Thanks. I'll leave that there. Okay. Perfect. Thanks. The point being is that sometimes God might put you in a situation where you've got to move forward in an area that may be outside of your comfort zone. It might be beneath you. But in Ruth's humility, she moves forward to provide for herself and for Naomi. And Boaz says, who is that? And begins to take notice. And then we move forward into this next part. And we've discovered that when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to field of grace. But then also when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to a place of refuge. How many of you are in need of a place of refuge right now? How many of you are moving and looking for protection and provision in all of the things of the world thinking that if I can only get to here, if I can only get to there, if I only can get the job, if I can only have enough in my 401k, if I can only maybe get married, if I can only do this, if I can only have that, then it will all be okay. And how many of you are sitting here saying, help me, Lord, to trust in you, and it is Okay. You know, I say that lovingly because I want to tell you that I've got it all figured out. But so many times in my life, I see me running toward the temporal. If I only have this much, if we only are there, if this only happens, then it'll all be okay. And God gently reminds me and he says, no, it is okay when you turn to me and trust in how I protect and provide for you. 
And as I look back in my life, I've said earlier, if you would have met me 25 years ago, 27 years ago now, this is the last thing I would have had on my mind. If you told me that I would be a pastor, I would laugh at you. And if you told me I'd be a pastor in rural Iowa, I would have said, man, that's a great one. And yet here I am. It hasn't been easy all the time, but I love what I do and I see the provision of God and I see the fullness of Christ. Not because I'm great, but because of God's love for me and his protection of me, drawing me to himself through those painful moments in life where I chose, not in my own strength, but in my brokenness and hurt, to trust him. And it is a full and rich life. When we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to a place of refuge. Verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, watch this, my daughter. Don't miss this. Look at the greeting, okay? And this is what I want to take for a moment. I've said before that Boaz is the archetype of Christ. He's sort of the reflection of Jesus. He could go to her and say, you Moabite woman, right? You minor person, look at me. I'm a position of stature. I'm Boaz. I'm the owner of the field. And not only am I the owner of the field, but I'm a man of stature. I'm a man of great wealth. I'm a man of this. Who in the heck are you? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth, the person who has created all things, right? Comes to you and says, who the heck are you? No, he says, my daughter, my son. That's how he wants and will greet you when you come to him. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch this progression. Boaz moves to a position of relationship, protection, and provision beyond what Ruth deserves, beyond what she expects, beyond what is the norm. Jesus moves in our lives to a position of protection and provision beyond what we deserve, beyond what we can expect, and beyond what is the norm. My son, my daughter, don't go and glean in the other fields, but come to me. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls, and we pick up in verse 9. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Ruth, you don't need to go and just pick up the scraps. You don't need to wait. You don't need to, to, to be destitute. But I want you to know that you can go and you can be in this field. And not only can you be in this field, but I don't want you to fear anymore because these men are not going to touch you. Temporally, that's wonderful. 
But notice essentially again sort of this allusion toward our Savior Jesus Christ. Don't worry. I've got it for you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. Stay in my field. Do not fear. And when you thirst, and when your life is dry, go and get a drink. Sounds similar to someone whom we know, whom we worship. You see sort of how Boaz is, again, the allusion or the archetype to Jesus. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I don't deserve it. I, I, why? why? Why are you doing this, Boaz? I'm a foreigner, and there's so much to this. Because at a temporal level, the people of God were the people of God. Ruth was a Moabitess. There was no reason that anyone should have to provide for her. The law applied to the people of God. And yet, Boaz goes above and beyond to provide for a Moabite woman. Temporally, <laughs> that's the aspect of what God is doing through Boaz. And guess what? Is anyone here Jewish by origin or by birth? Okay, I'm putting my hand down too because I'm not. So guess who we are? We're the foreigner. We're the Moabite. Because we're the Gentiles. So on a temporal level, this is why I love this story, is all of these things are happening by coincidence, yet sovereignly God is demonstrating his protection and provision, but it's a foreshadowing to the abundant blessing and the love of God that is coming through, okay, in the temporal situation, Boaz, who's the archetype to Jesus. Why are you doing this, God? I don't deserve this. I'm a foreigner. Because of who I am, says God. We continue on. In verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. The summary, okay, of the proclamation, essentially, that happened back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth, essentially, given the choice to go back to Moab, turns in faith and trust toward God and says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where I go, or sorry, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Boaz says, I've heard about this. I've heard what you've done. And then he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. Verse 12 of chapter 2. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. On a technical level, if you guys want to sound really smart, you can be like, oh, that's a zoomorphism. Essentially what that is, is it's taking a character trait of God and using essentially an animal activity, a zoomorphism, to describe who God is through his character. You have come under the protection of his wings. And you can be like, oh yeah, that's a zoomorphism. And people will go, wow, you are so smart. You can say, why, yes. Yes, I am. But let's pause on this for a moment. Are we taking refuge under the wings of God? In those times of hurt, in those times of pain, and in those times of challenge, or are we wanting to take refuge in our own strength, saying, God, I've got it. Interesting enough, Psalm 16.1 says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Let's examine our hearts and let's examine our lives. Are we moving toward a place of refuge in God under his wings? Or are we moving toward our own place of trying to find refuge in our own strength, in our own desires, and in our own means, in our own manner? I love how Boaz responds. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is essentially acting as Christ. God, in his providence, is designing what is going on behind the scenes. Okay, God, there's no mention of God right now. But yet God is all through this story. On a temporal set, here's what I want to ask you. Will we be a Boaz when someone comes to this church who is a Moabitess? Let me develop that for a minute. When someone comes who doesn't fit the mold. When someone comes who doesn't necessarily meet the requirements of the family. Will we look at them and say, why are you here? What are you doing, you destitute person? Do you really even deserve to be here? Or will we respond as Boaz responds and say, welcome my son, my daughter, and welcome them with loving and open arms as our Savior has welcomed us? A side note, but it's so important in who we are. Because if we are followers of Jesus and if we are to emulate Christ, guess what? We are to be just like Boaz. And that's why Boaz, who is the archetype to Jesus in this story, resonates so much with who Christ is. Because his heart is toward that of God. The other thing too, I've said before, is sometimes we wonder why God sends pain in our lives. But what I've said before is the people that I have seen who have gone, from, gone in or through the most painful situations are some of the most full people that I see in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And I think that aspect, that scenario can be summarized in this quote, which is this, that God sends the storm to show us that he is the only shelter. Don't fret at the storm. Because lovingly, what I want to tell you is this, that in the storm, if you turn to God and you find that he is the only shelter that is the richest, most blessed, most peaceful, most encouraging, most joyous place to be. And so crazily, by the temporal world, but boldly, through my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I say, God, if you've got to send the storm so I see you more fully, then so it be. Because you're my fullness. You're my righteousness. You're my inheritance. In the midst of life's pain, how do we find grace, refuge, abundance, and blessing? When we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to field of grace. And when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to a place of refuge. And then we continue on. And what's wonderful about this is, is it would be easy for Boaz to say, okay, great, I've done this. Now leave me alone. Don't bother me. I don't want to do any more. I've already done enough for you. And oftentimes what we can think is that's sort of the same character of God. So many have, people have this view of God as being this distant, far-off thing that if we're lucky enough to maybe get to or aspire to, that perhaps we might be able to be included in what it, she, he, they are doing. But they don't really want anything to do with us personally. They don't really want anything to do with us on a deeper level. And what we see here is as Boaz continues on, to relationally protect and provide for Ruth in ways that God does for us. In verses 13 through 17, we see that when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings abundance and blessing. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and spoken kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one, your, of, of one of your servant girls. Again, allusion to the undeserved favor that she's being given by Boaz. An allusion to the undeserved favor that we have been given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. So not only can you glean in the field, not only can you get the scraps, and not only can you stay and glean... And not only have I provided a means of protection for you, but now come sit and eat at my table and have the first fruits of what has been given. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says, come and eat. What? And you will be blessed. Come and drink and share my cup. We do that every time we participate in communion in the wholeness and fullness of God. Have my first fruits. Have the best of what has been provided. She ate all she wanted. It wasn't like, okay, sure, come and eat at my table. 
and, and if, if you want, okay, here's just, you know, uh, here, here's, here's the best, but, okay, take, and then leave me alone. Come and eat and have all that you want. And P.S., by the way, there's so much that when you have all you want, because I am Boaz and this is the field and this is the harvest, there's going to be more left over. Jesus says, come and have all that you want so that you will be fully satisfied, but I am a man, God of stature. And I promise you that when all is wanted, there is still more in abundance through me. At this, she got up to glean. Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. I love this. Don't make her feel different. Don't make her feel like she's a second-class citizen. Don't make her feel like she's lucky to be here and if she messes up, she's going to get kicked out. Lovingly, I want to tell you, how many of you feel that way in the church? And if you do, personally, I want to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me if I've done anything ever to make anyone feel like a second-class citizen, please forgive me, O Lord, because you are first-class in his eyes. You are deserved to be here. You are deserved to be a follower of Christ because you've trusted in his name and he has given you wholeness and fullness. And I pray that in this church, when people come here, even though they might be a Moabite, that they are whole and welcome in the family of God because of who he is. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she thrust the barley and she had gathered and amounted to an epath or an epath. Or an epa, kind of hard to pronounce. Great, what's that? Simply said, commentaries a little bit different here, but in and around two to five and a half gallons of grain, two and five and a half, simply way, don't worry about this, it's a lot. The point of this is in Jesus's time, or sorry, not in Jesus's time, but in Ruth's time, to demonstrate to the people who would recognize, wow, that's a lot of grain. In fact, it's so much grain that there's enough to provide not only for her, but for Naomi for probably two to three weeks to a month. Why is that important? Because we recognize that when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings us to a place of abundance and blessing beyond our expectation. Beautiful story. Some of you might be sitting here saying right now, well, yeah, well, where's my epa or my epa? I don't feel it. I don't see it, right? Lovingly, I'm going to tell you, I can't promise that that's going to occur in your life. But what I can tell you is where all of us will reap that guaranteed in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the day that we go to be with him in glory. The fields of harvest are going to be so amazing, so abundantly blessed, and that is a promise and a guarantee for anyone who is in the family of God. Boaz steps in, 
and essentially is moving through the sovereignty of God to a position that is called a kinsman redeemer. I've been saying that uh, for quite some time. In the Levitical law, in sort of the time and the protection of God's people, one of the things that we need to remember and recognize was that if someone lost family, if someone was destitute, a relative in the line could come forward and provide and protect them as a kinsman redeemer to move them to a place of stature, to a place of importance, to a place of recognition. Boaz will move to being the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Jesus moves to being the kinsman redeemer of us. We are destitute. We are in need. We are the foreigner. We are not, quote unquote, in the line. We've lost our spiritual father, yet the redeemer comes through Jesus Christ. You see that similarity, that archetype of Jesus? So as we now travel through these next several passages and we talk about Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, but yet Boaz being the archetype to Jesus, when we look at the picture of Boaz, may that remind us of what we have in Christ. But then when we look at the picture of Boaz and we're reminded of what we have in Christ, as good as Boaz is, as amazing as Boaz is, he doesn't compare at all to what we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus. We've traveled through these first 17 verses and I'm excited because it gets better now. In fact, it gets so good that it's a story that only can be written by God. It blows anyone's expectations and anyone's understanding of what possibly could be conceived because it is so far, so convoluted from logic that it can only be a story that God writes. And yet, what an amazing story it is. In the midst of life's pain, how can we find grace, refuge, abundance, and blessing? This is sort of the main thrust that I'd love to encourage you to take home with you this morning. That when we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings grace, refuge, abundance, and blessings to our lives. When we trust in the protection and provision of God, he brings grace, refuge, abundance, and blessings to our lives. As I look back to that time when I was reeling from the death of my friend Dominic at probably the darkest spiritual time in my life, the lowest point where I was most likely as far away from God as I wanted or could have been, I was still not beyond the grasp of God and my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And over the years, I look back and I see how God has worked and loved and provided and protected and blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. In the midst of life's pain, trust in the protection and provision of God, find grace and refuge in him, and then abundance.